Welcome to Boxes and Lines, a different kind of finance podcast from a different kind of stock exchange. Featuring IEX founder Ronan Ryan and Chief Market Policy Officer John Ramsey. Now here to give you the straight talk on how the markets really work. It's Ronan and JR. Welcome everybody to the latest, our not so latest episode of Boxes and Lines. Welcome back to Boxes and Lines. So what we're going to do today is we picked a very special podcast that was recorded a couple of years ago and we'll explain why and we're putting it up to the top of your podcast inbox if that even makes (laughs) any sense. But we we, we had done a podcast recording that should have come out this week and then we had to change uh, the release of that. So we didn't want to leave you boxers. It was probably my fault. It was his fault. We didn't want to leave you boxers with nothing to listen to. But I, mean, I think you'll enjoy this. You one, could have right? always just listened to this one off of the website, but now we're gonna we're gonna direct our attention, your attention to it because yes. it was a really good one. It was a really good one. It was from our friend Eric Budish. Eric who, Budish, who I believe we created a new moniker for him, Batch, because he is the king of oh, Batch yeah. auctions, and yes. so we decided to call him Batch. Yeah, he released so. a paper in 2015 around Batch auctions, and it was to address what he called the arms race for trading speed and its effect on efficiency, liquidity, and the market's complexity. Now that's a mouthful. Yeah, well, he is yeah. a professor, you know? Yeah, after all. He's a little long-winded, but he's very entertaining, actually, and very smart. He's very, very good, and this got a lot of listenership. So the reason why we thought we'd prop this to the top of your podcast inbox, trademark, is, <laughs> <laughs> is because since we released it, there's been a lot of proposals around uh, speed bumps, not just IEXs in the market, like uh, NASDAQ have refiled for... Changes to Mellow, Intelligent Cross have refiled to have protected ADF quotes, and One Kronos has uh, sort of finally launched. So I think it's timely for people to listen to this. And our sound engineer Jake keeps telling us to remind everybody. Jake, yes. he didn't record this he one. He's going to do his this best. one, but he's going to do his best. We yeah. had to get Jake out of bed at it's one o'clock. And so if it's not audible, no, don't yeah. blame Jake. Blame yep. Eric Budich. Batch. Enjoy, putters. Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Boxes and Lines. We have a special guest today, Eric Budish. Um, I'm going to try and introduce uh, this correctly. He's from the Stephen G. Rothmeyer Professor of Economics and Central Foundation, Robert P. Roos, faculty scholar at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. Very well a, a done. Of an American. You got all of that. That's very, <laughs> Thank you. very well. It's like you prepared for that, Ronan. Well, well so and, I, like I, and, and I, did, I didn't read it. That was all up here, John. Welcome yeah. to the podcast, Eric. It's, a, it's an honor to have you here. <laughs> it's funny because I saw your eyes you. moving across the screen. It looked like you were reading, but that's all right. Like our guest is speaking, and John's already interrupting him. Sorry. But listeners, you haven't heard a shit Irish accent, so we're off to a good start. Eric Eric has been a friend of IX for a number of years. He's actually come to many of our offices and pitched us on his papers. So really happy to talk to him today. Uh, first question we wanted to hit you with right off the bat is uh, just an interesting one: is like, how does academia and the finance industry work together? Like, when does it work well? What are the pitfalls and barriers? And because if anyone like uh, YouTube creeps you like I did before this podcast, you'll see you do like a variety of these speeches and. Uh, Many of them and most of them are around like the finance industry. It's very, very interesting. How does academia and finance work together? So yeah. that's, a, that's too big for this podcast. Um, I mean, at, 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 a, at a very high level, so like you think back like 40 years and Black and Scholes and Merton came up with the option pricing formula. That's an example of there's academic research finance practitioners immediately see the value. There's a massive alignment between what uh, the academy is doing and 
practical usefulness in financial markets. Portfolio theory was like that. A lot of the math that underlies you know, long-term, long-term portfolio management, where, where the alignment between research and practice or research and industry doesn't work as well as when interests are opposed, when researchers are, are working on ideas that don't make everybody money. And so some of, some of my research is hit up on a little bit of that. Um, but at, at a high level, um, finance practitioners are, I mean, to use the cliche, very smart and work hard and you know, read, read academic research. There's sort of a, a good back and forth dialogue. But in terms of importing our ideas and bringing them to practice, it works really well when, when there's money to be made and works less well when I think you just took a job. That, that kind of got uh, yeah, that well, kind of got dark I didn't mean to wow. <laughs> I didn't mean to go there. We, we do drive no, really nice no. cars, right? But uh, you know, it doesn't have to all be sweetness and light. So I'm gonna go to topic one of the day, uh, recent paper quantifying the high frequency trading's arms race. It was uh, quite a long paper. John read it uh, in triplicate. And uh, I thought we'd ask you a couple <laughs> I of read questions it twice. Yeah, yeah. Triplicate means three times John. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Can you, can you describe sort of like, I guess, short, because I said it was 99 pages, what it was about and what the methodology was, please? Yeah, so, so measuring high-frequency trading, you, you asked about the uh, alignment between finance uh, practice and academic research. And another source of, of tension is sometimes we don't have access to all of the data we want to study the questions we're interested in. And to study... To study high-frequency trading races, um, which I've which I've now been thinking about in, in various research papers over almost a decade, what's cool about this new paper is it has a data set that allows you to study races in a way that nobody's ever been able to do before. And the the key thing that's special about it is that if there's a trading race, so there's some stale quote, whether it's on IEX or on one of the 17 million other trading venues in the U.S. stock market or, or any other trading venue, if there's a steel quote, it's going to trigger a race. There'll be winners and losers of the race to pick off the steel quote. Traditional data sets available to academia or uh, the data sets that even sophisticated market participants build using direct feeds from exchanges effectively don't have the losers of races. Because you see, okay, there's a steel, let's say there's a steel quote at 11. You see someone traded it at 11, but you don't see that there were three other participants trying to get the same trade within a few millions of a second of each other. Because yeah. they just get bounced back with failed IOC messages. For the benefit, uh, Eric, of those that listen to this podcast that, that uh, are, not, are not in the industry, I just want to back up just slightly on one thing. A stale quote, sort of, maybe this is too, too high level, but from, from our view, we, we look at a stale quote as there's a quote out there on one venue of the 17 million you said exists that um, hasn't digested fresh enough data to realize that it's actually out there at the wrong price. And high frequency firms, and there's nothing wrong with this, it brings efficiency to the market. They are looking for those stale quotes. And as you were saying, they're going to race to them to take advantage of that stale quote out there. And, and what you were just alluding to is, yeah, you'll see that trade happen. So like in your example, the 11 trade, but what you don't see is the succession of the others that came in right behind it, meaning there was many trying to take advantage of that same trade. Is, is that right? Yeah. And so, so the, the context for this study was I've been wanting to measure for a long time now how, 
how common are, are races to pick off stale quotes? How much yep. money are they worth? You know, what's the, how concentrated are the winners and losers of, of races? You know, what would be, what would be the value to the market if you could reform the market design in ways that make trading a little bit less sensitive to the last millionth of a second or billionth of a second? But me- measuring the quantity of races has been hard to do with the available data sets. Because so, you can't, because I assume that you can't do that unless you get data from the exchanges, right? Because the exchange is the only entity that actually knows who sent an order, who who you know people that lost the race. Yeah, the the exchange. So so the kind of insight behind this study was if there's a race to pick off a stale quote at eleven, and let's say me, John, and Ronan are all racing to pick off that stale quote, and Ronan's Ronan's the fastest, he gets it. Thank you. John and Eric get bounced <laughs> back with essentially don't, an don't, error. Don't humor him. All right. Sorry, go ahead. You know, I, I said fastest. I could have picked, picked some other adjective. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, keep, keep it the, up. The most handsome, the most very, bald, very, I don't know. Very, um, very good. I've both had a hair listeners. Not that there's um, anything wrong with being bald. Keep going, Eric. <laughs> so a traditional data set, you'll see that, that someone traded at 11, but you won't see that John and Eric just, just missed. Um, but the, it's electronic communication between participants in the exchange. And... What our study got, and full credit to the UK Financial Conduct Authority for using using some regulatory muscle to get this data, what our study got was the full back and forth message traffic between participants in the exchange. So you could see, oh, there were three different participants who all tried to get this quote at 11 at just about the same time, one of whom got the trade and the other two got bounced back with a failure message. You were too late for the trade. So how how close in, in proximity were they to each other? Were you able to see that? Yeah. So the 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 typical race, so the mode and statistics speaks, the most common was that the difference in time between the winner of the race and the loser of the race was between zero and 15 millionths of a second. So zero and 15, 15 microseconds. microseconds. Wow. So like blinking your eye, you all know this by now, like this yeah, hundreds right. of thousands of microseconds. So just you know, tiny fractions of time. There was actually a, a small percentage of races that had a negative duration because the, the winner's attempt to take the stale quote made it to the exchange a little bit after the loser's attempt to snipe the stale quote. But you know, there's enough randomness in exchange architectures that the right. winner actually kind of got to the matching. Right. First. Oh, that that's interesting. Also. But, but that, it, it, that was about 4% of races kind of had a negative really? duration. It, it, I don't think that's like some controversy or, or like economic tragedy, but but it just speaks to just how fast these races are. But it's a it's a wonderful, brilliant in a way, validation of both the fact that these races occur and the extent to which they occur, given the fact that when, when you can observe that and the uh, existence of these orders that are arriving that close in proximity is not going to happen by accident. Yeah, it's not going to happen by chance. And we kind yeah. of quantify that, right? There's a yeah. new statistics to quantify how likely would it be that you know, the, the typical large cap stock in the UK stock market, there was about a race per minute over the course of the, the trading day. And the likelihood that you would have participants clustering together within you know, the same millionths of a second that many times per day is, you know, it, it would happen a few times a day by coincidence, but it wouldn't happen 500 times a day right. uh, by coincidence. Very interesting. The, the, thing that was, the, the, the sort of fact that was most astonishing to us 
was, you know, the, the, the speed of the races was not a surprise, um, but just the sheer quantity of trading volume that took place in races, that, that was a surprise. It was over 20% of all trading volume. And this, and this is in the UK stock market, which is less complicated in a lot of ways than the US stock market, for instance. And even there it was 20%. It was over 40% of volume if you define a race as within three thousandths of a second of each other. So three milliseconds. So, and that's still pretty damn fast. So it's yeah. just a huge, I mean, asset pricing finance researchers get confused. Like, why is there so much trading volume? But 20 to 40% of these little races. Yeah. Well, it's certainly facts. consistent with our experience here at IEX. And I mean, the other, the other uh, aspect of your paper that I think got a lot of attention when it first came out in the press was, kind of uh, measuring the um, potential cost um, on other participants from those races and then kind of like extrapolating that um, more broadly. Uh, so if you could say a little bit about that, that would be. Yeah. So the, the races were very fast, like I mentioned, a few, mil- few millions of a second, huge volume. That was 20 plus percent. Typical races were for just half a tick on average. So, so well, another surprising fact was the races, most races weren't for large amounts of money, but because of the volume, the stakes added up and we had a couple different ways of quantifying how important races are as a, as a source of the cost of liquidity in modern financial markets. And I, we should probably come to that topic in, in a moment. Why, why do we care? I think it's, it's fascinating that so much trading volume is in millionth and second races, but, but why, why should we care economically about it? But w- one quantification was that a third of all um, price impact. So that's a you know, measure markets people people track carefully. A third of price impact comes from races. And that's like a source of the cost of trading, the cost of accessing liquidity. Yeah. Um, another quantification was if you could eliminate the cost of races from the market, the market's cost of liquidity. So like the cost of being an institutional investor trading large blocks, that that cost would come down by about 20%, the so 17%. And then if you take the data from our study and extrapolate it to global equity markets, and we do this with just to provide a sense of magnitudes, it comes to about $5 billion in global equity markets per year. And what's driving that is, is the race profits as a proportion of trading volume in our data is about half a basis point which from one perspective sounds like who, who gives a whatever about half a basis point. But on the other hand, half a basis point over global equity markets, yeah, 5 billion is, is dollars. Yeah. And that's just equities. That's not you know, futures, currencies, all, all treasuries, you know, all, all the other stuff that trades on uh, limit order book markets. Yeah, no, it, it, it's incredible. Cause you're right. When, when we talk about it, sometimes you talk about it in the micro and you're like, okay, it's a, a half a basis point of impact. Do, do I really care? When I'm buying a, a hundred shares, should I care? You should care if you're an institutional investor and you're buying a lot of a hundreds over time. But yeah, when you quantify it in a half a basis over a global equities being five billion, yeah. it's it's there's a real impact there. I think back to that time when when there was a handsome man on sixty minutes. Uh, <laughs> oh no, and, and you know, my Michael Lewis described this the stock market as rigged. And I like I think about this half basis point in the context of that conversation. On the one hand, like half a basis point, like individual investors shouldn't get worked up about it. So the idea that like 
I should worry in my retirement account about high frequency trading and who cares about half basis point. But on the other hand, it's billions of dollars a year for a very small number of participants who then fight like heck to preserve the status quo of, of market design, of market structure. So that is, a, you, know, you can squint and call that rigged if you like. So Yeah, well, we and you don't even have to call it that to just uh, recognize that there's a lot of money at stake. And as you said, there are people that have a significant stake in keeping things the way they are. Your research or earlier sort of version of that paper is something that we relied upon as kind of additional justification for our uh, delimit order type, which is, you know, uh, again, if people aren't aware, was just a, a way of trying to incentivize people to post orders on exchange um, and provide some protection against these sorts of arbitrage strategies so that people uh, have more incentive without paying rebates and, yeah, and stuff and like I, that. What I liked about the delimit idea was I think that was essentially the first time in the U.S. stock market that you could provide liquidity. So using a displayed limit order, the, you know, the limit orders that are the basis of, of price discovery, but do so in a way that is, has at least some form of protection against latency arbitrage, against, right. against being yep. picked off. It's not yeah. perfect. It's, you know, it's a, we, no, we it, exactly. Like, I mean, it, it, I think it's first in that regard. So it, it, is, it is first. And that's why when you do go first on these things, you, you receive a lot of consternation. But um, a lot of people talk about the sanctity of the protected quote and everything like that. But um, from our view, we were trying to further protect a protected quote and give the user the opportunity to allow the exchange to move them out of the way if we thought there was an instance of a snipe going to occur. And again, like these snipes using your term, it's all it's all legal. It's fine. It's like people are doing this. And it's like, that's why we, we, we love, um, you know, the academic nature of your paper. But also it shows like applicable proof might be the wrong word of the potential harm. But it's hard yeah. to call something harm when it's when it's legal. It's like it's. One person's faster, they get there, it's they're, everything they're doing well, is but, but our But our point and the whole point yeah. behind the order type yeah. was that, fine, it may be legal currently, but it is, certainly should be legal and permissible for an exchange to be able to adapt and innovate in a exactly. way that makes that uh, kind of behavior less profitable. Yeah, um, and I got, you know, I'm a University of Chicago economist, right? Like I, I love markets, I love... I'm inclined to love competition, you know, the, the, the and I, I got a lot of pushback from my earlier work of what, what's, if I'm, if I'm first to pick off a stale quote, that's just, you know, that's just healthy competition. And there's this old Milton Friedman line about the rules of the game. Like you got to get the rules of the game right and then have full, vigorous, healthy competition. Uh, yeah, well, there were also and, people at one point who argued that insider trading should be permitted because it just helps uh, markets to function more efficiently if there's a competition for people to... Yeah, and we can have like, legitimate debate about whether which rules of the game to have. And I, I've been yeah. arguing that you know, we should have diff slightly different rules of the game. Yeah. That's right. Awesome. Absolutely. Let's move on to uh, the, the next topic. Uh, John has a question for you on batch auctions, but that's... <laughs> Thank you. That's, no, that, that's how I was introduced uh, to Eric probably... <laughs> Seven years ago, and I, I've, yes. I've I've loved this debate. So I, I'm stopped front running. Ha ha ha! John's question. Go, John. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. So Eric is sometimes known in the circles we deal with as Mr. Batch Auction. 
Actually, nobody may have called you that before, but I just we did. Call him Batch going forward. It's kind of tough. Yeah, maybe we'll just call him Batch. Don't, don't mess that with Batch. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and just so for the benefit of our listeners, when we're talking about Batch auctions, we're we're not talking about a, a Bake Off fundraiser. Uh, we're talking about a. Uh, ding, well, ding. You, well, why don't you why don't you explain it, Eric? What oh, does the term Batch auction mean? Okay, so so the basic idea <laughs> of frequent batch auctions, which is a, a market design that I've proposed, um, it's published in a, a paper from 2015, and I've been talking talking to folks about it for you know, almost 10 years now. I think I told Ronan about it. I think summer 2013. I remember remember yeah, well. Absolutely. Um, so the idea of batch auctions is is currently financial markets that operate as limit order books uh, run in continuous time. And what I mean by that is if my order to trade is or order or request to cancel is even a, maybe a billionth of a second earlier to the market than yours, that's interpreted as economically meaningful. And the market processes requests to trade one at a time in strict order of receipt. So we call it you know, time priority. And the, the argument we've been making is that at some basic level, continuous time is the mistake. We should put time into units the same way we put prices into units in, in a lot of financial markets. The unit could be really small. It could be a, a, a thousandth of a second or finer. But then batch process requests to trade every, say, thousandth of a second or every, every fraction of a second. And the batch processing would be using, uh, using an auction. So let's say the batch interval was a millisecond. I assume for your your listeners, are relatively sophisticated in the weeds about markets. So let's let's say it's a millisecond. There's 23.4 million milliseconds in a trading day. So we're talking like very very frequent auctions. Most milliseconds, as you both know well, for most stocks, essentially nothing happens. Yep. So or, orders would be just like in the continuous market, in price, quantity, and a direction. They remain outstanding until executed or canceled, just like in the continuous market. But at the e- end of every batch interval, they'd get batch processed using using an auction, um, and then you'd see you'd see publicly where the market was at the end of every batch interval as well, after every auction was run. So you you kind of see in in discrete time where the market is. So you bid ten, ask eleven, for example. If you want to trade hundred shares at eleven, you you just trade at the next discrete time interval. Again, most milliseconds, nothing happens. But if there's a public signal that triggers a massive race to pick off stale quotes, the auction kind of re-engineers that competition. It re-engineers competition at the at the millisecond level from competition on speed into competition on price. That's kind of the, the beauty of the auction relative to, to continuous trading. And I'm how sure would the all made sense. But that was kind no, of it a, does. It does. One, one, one question, I know the answer, but I'll ask it. But like when uh, the, these, these millisecond time buckets, when the orders arrive within that bucket prior to the auction, when the auction goes off, is it, is it done by the time of arrival? Yeah, great, great yeah. question. So... So if the first thing to say is, you know, most milliseconds, not much is going to happen. Yep. So if I, if I show up in a millisecond and want to buy at the offer. You're likely on your own. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to buy at the offer at the end yep. of the millisecond, especially if I'm not acting on some, uh, on some trading signal. I'm just showing up to buy uh, of my own volition. 
But if, if there's a burst of activity, if there are multiple arrivals within the millisecond, they would all have the same time priority. So priority becomes price, then discrete time. Well, what it means to make a market in a frequent batch auction market is I provide bids and offers that I let rest for many discrete time intervals. So for many, many milliseconds. That's what you know, I'm making a market bid 10 ask 11. I'm leaving bids and offers in the batch auction market over many milliseconds. That's getting shown to the, shown to the rest of the world. So um, similar to what we talked about earlier in your quantifying the high-frequency trading arms race, when some of those races, you would see like three people come in within 15 microseconds of the leader. In this instance, in a time of flux like that, those three parties would then uh, be allocated at a millisecond level equally. Right. Yeah, so then it doesn't help. Part, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't help being a few millionths of a second fast. Yeah, th- those um, three yeah. parties would compete on price. Yes. Yeah. So if you knew that the 11 was stale and you were willing to pay 12, you could get the trade by offering 12. I see. And, and the right. guy providing the stale quote, the, the investor who's making the market at, at 11, would actually get price improvement. They would get the auction determined price rather than getting picked off. So you know, the, the, the converse of being picked off is you got the, the cost of being picked off is you got a price that was stale. If you had just traded a little bit later, you would have gotten a market, a, a price that reflects new information. Exactly. That would be a better price for you. So the, the auction kind of builds in some price improvement for the stale quote. So, so uh, CBO has actually gotten approval to implement some version of intraday periodic auctions. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do you have any, have any thoughts about that particular proposal? Yeah, so so uh, at my first kind of high level thought is, is very positive. It's, it's a batch auction proposal in the U.S. stock market. It's got a lot of design similarities with what we wrote about in our papers, you know, 100 millisecond batch interval, orders have the same flavor, you know, price quantity, um, price quantity direction, remain outstanding until executed or canceled. The thing I worry about with the SIBO proposal or SIBO auction design, yeah. and it's the same concern about batch auction designs that are currently up and running in Europe, is the, um, the information policy. They're essentially designed to run alongside the continuous market, where mm-hmm. the continuous market is doing all the price discovery. Mm-hmm. And then auction uh, orders in the in the auction are all dark or all hidden. Mm-hmm. And an auction only triggers when like dark, essentially when dark crosses dark. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit. Yep. So, and that would typically be at the midpoint. So... I used the phrase uh, in a comment letter to the, the European regulators. I worry a little bit about auction in name only, where essentially you're using the phrase frequent batch auction, but it's, it's really a midpoint matching venue. And that's, I think, most of the activity in Europe. Uh, it's got I think, a 3 or 4% market share last I checked. A lot of it is matching at the midpoint of prices discovered in the continuous market. Whereas, so ideally, you'd like to have the auction mechanism actually participate in the price discovery. And, and yeah, and, and our proposal, the frequent, frequent batch auctions as de- designed and proposed and you know, game theoretically analyzed, et cetera, et cetera, in, in the Buddhist Crampton Shim paper, again, orders are displayed publicly to the market every discrete, after every discrete time interval. So there's yeah. a notion of like, I can make a market, bid 10, ask 11, but get protected by the auction from getting sniped. The SIBO batch auction proposal, there's no displayed liquidity that's protected from latency arbitrage, you know, from sniping. 
But I think it's positive. It's it's batch auctions in the U.S. Yeah. stock market. Expect yeah. to have some success. But, yeah, yeah, but you still like us better than them. I mean, we're still your favorite exchange, right? Yeah. Don't, don't answer that question. We, 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 we have a good relationship I, I like with CBOE. Me, I like me better than both of you. There you go. <laughs> He's a professor. He has to well, be that well way, John. Played. Yes. But he just yeah. winked at us. He winked yeah. at us on yeah. video. <laughs> don't worry, Eric. I got. I, I, I read the tea leaves. Totally mm-hmm. cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> anyway, um, go on to some of the other research that you've been doing. Uh, there's COVID, 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 COVID vaccines. <laughs> Ticket, online ticketing, uh, Bitcoin, blockchain. We, we've had a we've had a few podcasts on Bitcoin and blockchain, so we'll skip that. But I I'd be kind of curious because I've always read your stuff around arms race and sniping and batch auction, and, I, and I'd be curious what you're doing in the uh, the COVID space and the online ticketing to the extent yeah. I mean, I, the COVID thing I think is fascinating, yeah. and I know just because uh, I do my uh, homework and uh, Rona does less preparation for this. I looked at your um, doesn't sound list that way of- though. <laughs> your list of uh, papers. So you've got a, a paper currently in process, market design to accelerate COVID-19 vaccinations, which sounds fascinating. It certainly is a topic of, uh, you know, a lot That's of clickbait if I've ever heard it. Nice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's speed, right? The, so the, uh, the basic, the basic insight, and this is part of a large research team. We published a paper in science in March and I published an op-ed in the wall street journal uh, around that same time. The way we think about uh, global vaccination is that capacity translates into speed. So in Q1 of 2021, this past year, the world was vaccinating at a rate of about a billion people per year. So once you start thinking about like flows and rates of vaccinations, like, oh, a billion people per year, that's not fast enough. We got to build more factories. We got to build more distribution capacity because um, there's a lot more than a billion people in the world. So it can take a lot of years to vaccinate the world at a billion people period. It's, it's up since then, but, but not by nearly enough. Really? We what, what's, to, what's it at at its height? Do you, do you know? I, there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great vaccine tracker from Bloomberg. Yeah. It's lumpy, but a, a, yeah. a few billion per year. If you take the, the most positive forecasts yeah. of all of the, global vaccine manufacturers, then you can get up to about 7 billion per year, which would be enough to vaccinate the world you know, by the end of 2021. So we're not, we're not really on track to hit that. Okay. Our kind of baseline case that we analyzed in this paper was it looked like the world was getting to like three, 4 billion of capacity per year, but even just sort of conceptualizing the problem that way, like what's your, what's your rate of vaccination and number of people per month or number of people per year, even that was helpful. And then that lets you put a dollar value on vaccine capacity. So one, one of the numbers that I think was quite, quite helpful is we showed, and it was, I think, very conservative, actually, but a course of vaccine capacity is worth, on global average, about $6,000 per course. The price of a vaccine is, you know, five bucks a course, up to maybe 50 bucks a course for the Pfizer and Moderna ones, and there's some implementation distribution costs. You see, like, this massive disconnect between the global value of ending the pandemic. It's got economic benefits. It's got health benefits. It's got just, we're all like you know, depressed and on zoom all day. Right? It's, it's a ma- just massive yeah. societal benefits yeah. from ending the pandemic. And this, this exercise is a way of just putting some quantities around what's the value of speed. What's the value of vaccinating faster? 
Yeah, no, I'm not against speed in all contexts. <laughs> and, and it feels enough. <laughs> That's right. We got to fetch vaccine people. That's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're for speed vaccinations. Well, it seems it is like terrifically important and relevant research, it, it seems to me, because one thing that seems clear is that this, uh, you know, we're going to have to deal with pandemic issues from time to time. Um, and this virus in particular is going to be around um, for, you know, a very long time and continue probably to mutate. And um, we're going to have to be able to develop, you know, tweak vaccines in order to sort of keep up with that. And so uh, this is. Yeah. And that's another another reason why more capacity. It's like an insurance policy against mutations, against just the world should have overshot on that one. That would have. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, it would have been good if the world invested. In, uh, the world invested. Like that uh, sounds very ivory tower, but like somehow we didn't. Yeah. We didn't yeah. globally get there and, and just pay up for a, enough uh, enough vaccine capacity. Mm-hmm. Wait, I mean, we we did better than we could have, right? Like it's not it's not been a total tragedy, but yeah, it's not a failing grade. But it, yeah, it, it could have been better. We could have we could have done faster. And yeah, you know, my other thing was sort of we could have done better around like how we thought about. Lockdown and reopening, like, it, like more tests, masks, you know, just think, things that contain the spread of the virus and allow people to get some semblance of their life back faster. I mean, that is sort of the thing I put out in like March of 2020. Yeah, I'd, um, I'd say this. Is, so like it's it's July 28th as we record this today. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, chatter. We're, we're in New York City, uh, John and I, and, you know, we've been maskless now for probably the past four to six weeks. It's 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 really been liberating, but now at this time, the Delta variant is rising, of course, more in unvaccinated people, of course, but there's a, there's a lot of chatter around the country about uh, enforcing uh, masks indoors again. And I, that, that gives me a lot of edge there that we would be going backwards that way. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, I like, I coughed once at my desk earlier, right? It looked like he was going to throw a tarp over me. I was just looking out okay. for you, John. Don't worry. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, what I mean, it was. Sure. One of the points I've tried to make is like, is a good idea. We, do we conceptual? So like, so you know, we talk about, you just mentioned the Delta variant. So one of the things that's scary about the Delta variant is it's more transmissible. Yeah. But do we try to, are we trying to reduce the risk of transmission all the way to zero? Or are we trying to reduce the reproduction rate of the virus to less than one? And I've, I've been arguing like the goal, the, the, the goal in policy is to prevent exponential growth. Yeah. Not to eliminate all transmission. Because uh, once you eliminate the exponential growth, then you kind of get, that's like almost 99 plus percent of the action, but it's every yeah. incremental. So, so you kind of want to do as much as you need to, to, to stop exponential growth, but no more because it's so costly. And the, the burden that's been put on kids over the last year has been, uh, has been really hard. You know, it, it's been hard on everybody. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe we should go into a lighter topic, John, yeah, right? Yeah, please do. Lighter <laughs> yeah. topic. All right. Our, our, question, light it our question of questions. Let's make it a bit, shall we? He brought it back. Talk about right. I was, I was worrying. I was worrying that John wasn't bringing out the Irish accent. I thought no, I'd insulted no, I just, him. I've been keeping you, keeping you, keeping you in suspense. It, it was still shit, moment. by the way. Just so you know, yeah, thank for the you, record, um, it was okay. still crap. How okay. about this? What's your favorite Wall Street movie, Eric, and why? <laughs> we ask all guests this question, so don't 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 feel ambushed. I'm, yeah. I don't feel ambushed. So I mean, I, it's a cliche, but I love Wall Street. I, I, mm-hmm. I love that movie. Um, I've given the greed is good speech at lunch a few times, and 
you know, you, you don't want to be making a hundred, few hundred thousand bucks traveling first class, being comfortable, you know, which is like, you know, mark to market 35 years later with inflation. That's, you know, that's now professor life. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that movie's with me. Um, I read a lot. I, so I worked on Wall Street for a couple of years at a college. I was a very bottom of the totem pole in the Goldman Sachs mergers department. Oh, nice. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, well, if you'd, I, read, I if you'd actually that, read his CV, you would have known that. I know, I, I know, he know. attended uh, Harvard yeah. University, just yeah. you know. Right. Okay. And I probably knew about the Goldman thing because Eric is more of a friend of me than he is of you. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not, God, he's so petty. Let's not turn. This Let, don't edit that. Don't edit that. Leave that yeah. in. Everywhere. Yeah, right. but I, I was, okay. I was a deals guy. I, I loved Barbarians at the Gate. I, I loved all that stuff. Uh, yeah, the bar. Actually, four of the Barbarians at the Gate's kids went were in my fifth grade class. So really? Wasserstein, Cohen, Steinberg, and Edelman. They're, you know, so they're great. They're great. Yeah, was, uh, I, had a, I had a warped childhood growing up. What, what led you? What led you to academia? Then, I, you know, that's a that's a hard question. It's a, I mean, it's this is. I've always been fascinated by markets. I've always been really interested in ideas. I've liked being around people who are creative and innovative. And something about research just. Uh, I, I found really appealing. There's a lot of fascinating jobs where you get to be around creative and innovative people at the frontier of different of different topics. Like us, like Ronan. Yeah, and like, I mean, not many people have that opportunity. You know, like like Google. Yeah. Well, you certainly seem happy and in the and in no, the it's, right it's place. A, it's a great job. It's yeah. a it's a it's a weird job in a lot of ways, but it's a it's a great job and. Um, I didn't have some grand plan as a kid, like, oh, I want to be a professor at, in economics. It was, yeah. like, you know, lives, lives are a little random. Mm. <laughs> Tell me about it. Um, no, no one leads. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm There's another story there, there <laughs> but we really yeah. don't have Sorry, my inner monologue just drifted into <laughs> bad places there. Uh, listen, no, no one comes on this podcast and leaves with nothing, right, John? What, what does Eric get? <laughs> they leave with different... next to nothing, yeah, which is a pair of socks. But, you know, we got to give you something. Your very own boxes and lions socks. I, I can I can frame I can frame that. That's uh, some framed socks <laughs> in my office. You seem more happy than the last fellow we gave them to, who declared, "Of all the great swag you have at IEX, you're giving us a." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You were at least a little grateful. Well, um, he works at Goldman. Eric's an academic. This all makes sense. <laughs> That's right. It's actually, I mean, a true story. <laughs> sorry, John Cassanza. I love you, man. Yeah, yeah. His expectation, expectations are a little higher. <laughs> so, Eric, we're at the end of our podcast. You're you're happy with your socks, and we just want to thank you very much for joining us. We'd love to have you back again. I'll send you another 99-page paper in exchange for the socks. Perfect. <laughs> exactly. Please don't do that. But John, John will read it in triplicate, which to him means twice. Take care, Eric. Thanks very much for being on this Thank podcast. Thank you and God bless. God bless you all. Boxes and Lines is a podcast from IEX Exchange. It is hosted by Ronan Ryan and John Ramsey. Executive produced by Daisy Clace. With support from Benstown. For more information and to hear more episodes, go to iexexchange.io slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Boxes and Lines. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only, and IEX Group Incorporated and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversation may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Incorporated, all rights reserved.